I I envision my death <laughs> often. <laughs> well, only when I go over the certain on ramp. There's <laughs> once <laughs> when I <laughs> when I go on the certain on ramp. It's like over. Well, in Texas, a lot of the on ramps, the freeways are above mm. way up high. Well, there's one in here in California when you go on one, you're driving on one to get to another freeway, mm. you're going up. And I feel like if I die, it's going to be off the <laughs> This isn't... Like I'm going to fly off. It isn't like an intrusive thought where you're like, there's part of you going, just just turn the wheel. Just just turn the wheel. <laughs> I don't know, maybe. No brain. Shut I... up. We have to get to work. <laughs> I just, I just, every time I'm like, that's how I'm going to die. But even when I was on my motorcycle, that was a scary thought because I would go and I'd ride in the mountains. Mm. And when I would, like, there's something very real called um, target fixation. And that's how I broke, I broke my leg and my arm because I ran, I saw this big rock and I was like, don't look at the rock. Look away, look away. And I couldn't look away. So you just naturally gravitate over, towards the rock. Right. Oh. I ran over the rock. Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote, and this is Consistently Eccentric, a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with... So, this story begins right towards the end of the Georgian era. So we're okay. almost at Queen Victoria. Okay. Joseph Lister was born on April 5th, 1827, at Upton House in West Ham, Essex. Which is not to be confused with Upton Park in West Ham, Essex, that was the home of West Ham United from 1904 to 2017. Yeah, I would have gotten that wrong. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> the, only, the only thing anyone associates no with West Ham is the football club, generally speaking. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I, I have no clue what you just said. It was very controversial. I knew it was football. Yeah. I knew it was football. They moved from there to the um, the Olympic Stadium, the one that was for the 2012 oh. Olympics, and everyone was really, really upset at the fact that they'd, they'd moved there. Uh, Why? Because it, it, uh, Upton Park was one of the grand old stadiums, you know, of the early sort of um, 20th century, and a lot of the fans were like, we don't want to move to a, a, a stadium with an athletics track around it because you're going to be so far away from their thing and there's going to be no atmosphere. Oh. They seem to have all sort of got behind it now, though. They quite, they quite like having it because it's, you know, it's a bit flashy. <laughs> okay, well, good. Joseph's parents were Quakers and weirdly had inherited a successful business as wine merchants. Huh, wait. Okay. Yeah. Uh, apparently, although Quakers are sort of... It's, it's encouraged not Straight to narrow. drink too much or drink to excess. There's no law against encouraging others to drink to excess. And <laughs> because wine practically sells itself... I mean, that's like the Mormons saying they don't want people to work on Sundays, but after church they'll go and have a lunch <laughs> at a restaurant where they're yeah yeah making people work. We, we you know we're them. not going to do it, but we're encouraging yeah. you to do it. Is that, yeah right. yeah. Um, I got gotcha. you. But the business it had been in their generations; it was well established. People knew that if they wanted their Quaker wine, they they go over to the Listers. So. Joseph's father, another Joseph, Joseph Jackson, he had lots of free time because the business was just ticking along nicely. 
and he decided to use that free time to pursue his passion of being a gentleman scientist. And apparently, this was really common amongst the um, Mormons. You've got me thinking about Mormons now. This was ah, really common right. amongst the Quakers <laughs> because they weren't allowed or they were discouraged from drinking, from going to theatre, from wasting their time doing the things that other people do, um, you know, yeah. sporting events and stuff. Doing all the fun things. And one of the few yeah. things they were allowed to do was to pursue knowledge. So sort of all of this like ornithology and sort of homemade science experiments. It was one of the few sort yeah. of avenues available to them. So as a result, Quakers are often at the forefront, especially during the uh, Georgian Victorian era of um, innovation because they've got the free time and they've got, you know, they've got the skills. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Um, I do actually, speaking about this though, I said they're both called Joseph. So Joseph Lister and his dad, Joseph Jackson. Lister. Yeah. He was the fourth child. And I'm wondering what the other three kids did that oh. he didn't feel like they they deserved his name. Because you normally think your first your firstborn yeah, son would get that would be the Joseph. Yeah. But no, he waited till his third. Maybe you were waiting to see which one was less um ill. <laughs> or maybe they were just all called Joseph <laughs> hoping one would survive. Well, well, yeah, I mean, I know at least name. at least one was a, a lady, and it probably wouldn't have been fair. But she could have been called Josephine, and she wasn't. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it just it just strikes me as odd. It's like maybe it was he saw that his first son come out, and he was like, "That that child looks sickly and weak. I'm not yeah, wasting well. my name on that thing. We'll call him. <laughs> I don't know, Herbert, Billy, or Billy, or whatever. You know, Herbert." We'll give him a nice soft name. We'll call him Quentin. He's not long for this world. Bless him. <laughs> um, yeah, so in particular, Joseph Jackson, his branch of science he was obsessed with was the microscope and viewing things under the microscope. It was considered to be pretty much just a, a rich person's toy and scientists, real scientists, didn't see a practical application for it. It was just an amusing thing in Georgian Britain. Oh. How wrong they were. Well, Joseph Jackson, he was con he was convinced that it, it it would prove to be very, very useful. And he spent 30 years making the <gasps> thing progressively better, hand grinding his own lenses to his own design. Wow. Until he could lay claim to potentially having the best microscope in the world. He won wow. awards for it. He was granted uh, entry to the Royal Society because of his work with this microscope. Didn't the inventor of the microscope, he was a like a, a rug merchant, and he took it as far as he could go, and that was a hobby, I believe. Fantastic. I can't remember his name, but I remember he he was like trying to get other people to see his invention. I think he was like a rug merchant or something. I just, I just that story just popped into my head. I remember I reading say, about that back before TV. Everyone had a side yeah. hobby. Everyone had a... You know. Right, yeah. But I think he invented, like... But he took it as far as he mm. could go. Um, I'm guessing he didn't have the same he... amount of money as a rich Quaker businessman to, to really... He wasn't hand-grinding his own lenses, I'll take it. Well, he was. He I'll was. But I don't think he... Um... Ugh, I'll have to find the story. Sorry. Not a problem. I'll, f I'll have to find it later. Source. Need source. <laughs> Need the source material. Right. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm just going off memory. That's why you write things down. I actually did write that one down because I thought it was an interesting story. 
but you know. Quickly, go to your roller deck. I don't have it in front of me. Stories. Let's flick through. We'll find him. He'll be under our right, rug salesman. But yeah, so he he developed what was probably the best example of a microscope in the world to that point. And naturally, he let his young son have free access to it at all times, even when he was in his preteens. Oh. Um, he also let him have access to his large collection of slides that he'd amassed over the 30 years. Um, That's why he's Joseph Jr. Yeah. Because he's looking after the interests of his father. Well, Joseph Jackson, he housed his slides and his microscope in a converted attic that he referred to as the museum. Uh, as it also <laughs> contained hundreds of fossils and other specimens alongside, wow. a subspe- uh, alongside a substantial collection of scientific books. So That's some attic. Yeah, in terms of J- Joseph Jr. showing a bit of interest in you know the sciences, and he goes, oh, well, if you're interested in that, let me show you what Daddy does in the attic. And then he opens it onto this treasure trove of all the latest scientific journals, loads of samples of everything you could imagine from sort of, you know, fossils to wet samples to anything else you could name. And then in the middle of all of that, this microscope and just showing him how it worked. He also, because he was a good dad and because he had the means, sent his son to exclusive private schools, which of course didn't hurt his development in terms of his own learning. It was literally only the best for Joseph Jr. His dad believed in him believed he was going to make something of himself and he was going to have a good career <laughs> screw the other kids mm. no i'm just kidding no, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure they all got <laughs> by this time quentin's dead it's fine i'm just kidding um young joseph was only 14 when he decided on the career he wanted to pursue he was busy painting photorealistic images of some animal skeletons he'd found as you do it's a saturday right um <laughs> when he realized that becoming a surgeon would allow him to look in detail at all the blood, guts, bones and gore he could ever want. So at the age of 14, he he decided that his vocation, his his calling was to become a surgeon. At this time... I think at 14, I can't even imagine what I wanted to be. At 14, I think... It surely wasn't. Still had aspirations of being a sportsman of some kind. And no one (laughs) one had broken it to me that being south of five foot... 10 meant that I was very unlikely to <laughs> to be able to manage that Aww. Um, but at this time late Georgian period uh, surgeons were seen as practically tradesmen there was no real because these were the ones who come from you know the barber surgeons they were the help You're right you know it was just a, a job yeah. you give to that gubbin in the corner who knew how to wield a blade um, and hospitals treated them um, as such because they would regularly pay surgeons less than they would pay the chief bug catcher. Wow. Because, I mean, you know, surgery, surgery, but someone's got to get those bed bugs. <laughs> Someone has to get those bed right? bugs. Right? So, yeah. I mean, that, that should be a high-paying job right there. Well, to be fair to them, the scope of what surgeons could operate on at the time was limited due to the fact that there was no anesthesia at all and hospital-acquired infections were so rampant that operations taking place inside the abdomen, chest, and brain were considered by the most prominent surgeons of the day to be impossible to undertake without killing the patient. They're like, yeah, maybe we could go in there, maybe we could do what you want us to do, but that person will be dead in a matter of days afterwards, and it'll be yeah. sepsis, it will be nasty. It takes a lot, it takes a lot of uh, nerve, too, to be a surgeon. Mm. 
to do amputations or to do things. You have to do it so quickly that, I mean, there's blood and they're screaming and Ooh, it, yes. it takes a lot of nerve on the surgeon's part. You have to be very to sure of what you're going to do. It's like you've got to visualize your plan because yep. about three seconds in, everything's slippery and covered in blood and you've just got to continue and commit to what, yep. whatever your plan was. Yep. <laughs> and yeah, despite the, you know, the screaming and the the blood and the gore and the, the, the lack of prestige. Joseph, when he announced this to his dad, Joseph Jackson, his father supported him. He was oh. all for it. And he paid for him to go to and study at the newly formed University College London. Because unlike Oxford and Cambridge, religion was not a qualifying characteristic. So at the time, Quakers couldn't go and study at either Oxford or Cambridge, the two big ones because they had a religious bar to entry whereas oh. um, the newly formed University College London it said no it's open to everyone the only thing that we require is that you're you know smart enough to, <laughs> to engage in the learning however his dad did have one stipulation to him going to study um, medicine and that was that he started off by getting an arts degree oh um so young it's usually not the case yeah, well young joseph lister <laughs> he he said okay fine uh, and tentatively began his career in medicine in 1846 which was just in time for a game changer of a discovery because on december 21st while little joseph lister was still technically finishing off his arts degree so he shouldn't have been starting to dabble in medicine but he couldn't help himself um he was one of many students who squeezed into the operating theater at the affixed um, hospital. It was, of course, open to the public, as all um, surgical theatres were. So you could always go yeah. and watch at the time. Um, in order to witness the first use in Britain of ether during a surgical procedure. And we've got to give credit where it's due across the oh. pond because the use of ether was first developed in America. Yeah. But this was going to be the first time it was witnessed on British soil. And the procedure they decided to try it out with, oh. nice, simple, just your general standard leg amputation yeah i was gonna say i think it was an amputation i'm just thinking okay. wouldn't wouldn't you test it with something just like a bit smaller than an amputation yeah yeah but i feel like that was something that they got down that they they knew that procedure it, i mean well it's it's true sleep but here's a fun little a fun little game how long do you think that this groundbreaking surgical procedure took from start to finish to get the leg off it was less than two minutes. 28 seconds. It? Yeah. 28 like really seconds to get through the they bone. Down. And by that time, they were just sort of um, tying off all of the arteries. After after 28 seconds, they were at the cleanup phase. It's ridiculously quick. Yep. <laughs> because, like you've said, surgeons to that point had to work as quickly as possible to minimize the pain for the patient. That was the only... In lieu of anesthesia, it was... Well, <laughs> it's going to hurt like buggery but i promise you it won't be for long <laughs> one way or the other anybody can handle anything for 28 seconds yeah. well except except that it yeah you you in hindsight you're like oh yeah i i did manage to deal but with that no. it just begins that's just it just begins i mean this was back at a time when they were like yeah that the, the the nod to sort of trying to keep the patient and patient care was don't get the blades out until we've strapped them down because it'll only distress them. And try and make sure that you're not wearing, you know, the most blood-soaked of the uh, surgical gowns. 
you know, let's let's try try and you know give them some That's true some kind of comfort before <laughs> all hell breaks loose. Um, but yeah, the trial worked. The patient didn't cry out in pain, and when revived, he asked when the procedure would begin. Uh, which uh. you know, it got a bit of a laugh from the assembled people there, but it was proof positive, and it appeared that pain it was no longer going to be a barrier to surgery. Yay! Yay! <laughs> um, unfortunately for Joseph as he was about to start his actual honest-to-goodness medical training he then developed smallpox a disease which had killed oh. his brother a year earlier oh no so, you know when I said uh, the, the older brother wasn't long for the world yeah smallpox yeah. got him um, though Joseph himself managed to survive it took a massive toll on his mental health and he had to leave his medical studies in the first semester after he had a small nervous breakdown just a minor one. Oh, uh, actually, that's not quite. I didn't realize that smallpox could do that. I think it was more. Um, it, it, it he'd had to take time off, and it was the first semester, so it was the the pressure of the building. So work it wasn't. That he wasn't di- doing. It wasn't the smallpox for like directly. It was all of the events surrounding. Yeah, it. yeah. It was. I mean, he was okay. he was said to be of a nervous disposition. Was Joseph Lister? He had a stutter as a child. He was very sort of sensitive to things and losing his brother okay. and then getting the same disease and being convinced he was going to die um, yeah. that even when he survived. That would be really, really scary. It had really affected him. And he was also, um, during those first years, he was living um, in rented accommodation with another Quaker. Uh, and this el- this older Quaker that he was living with was a bit more fire and brimstone and a bit more um, oh, a fundamentalist. And... I think that was sort of getting into uh, Joseph Lister as well, just like the idea of, oh my God, you know, everything's sort of end times and this, that and the other. So the cumulative thing was he he needed to take some time off. Uh, And while he was convalescing, because he he went on a tour of, I think it was um, Ireland he went on a tour of, so he was out in Ireland enjoying the countryside, you know, taking in the air. He seriously considered that maybe surgery wasn't his calling and maybe what he would be better off being was a uh, a Quaker minister instead. Oh. Mm. His father, however, being as he was a very good parent, I can't stress enough yeah. how good Joseph Jackson was as a parent, he recognised that this was just his son's fears um, and that he wasn't wanting to become a Quaker minister because he felt a calling to do that particularly. It was just that... <laughs> he, it was yeah, safe. Yeah, it was a safe thing for him. So he talked his own son out of becoming a minister and counseled you you'll go back there to ucl you'll get started and you'll you you know you'll find your passion again once you actually get into the the day-to-day of the study of medicine you'll you'll find the same passion for it that you had when you were busy sketching those little skeletons back when you were a kid and it turned out he was right joseph lister returned in 1848 to complete his studies Happy that his role in life, his role designated by the Lord God, no less, was to minister the sick. And with that kind of belief, uh, he proved to be very diligent, very hardworking, constantly, constantly using his microscope to look at the samples of things that he was cutting up and just always seeming to be more interested in what was going on than the other students who... I mean, medical students in London at the time had a bit of a reputation for drinking, for uh, <laughs> carousing with women. 
Um, <laughs> oh, which meant that just by virtue of the fact that, you know, he was sober during most of the lectures, Joseph Lister was immediately to the top of the class. Uh, and by 1851, he was working as a dresser, assisting eminent surgeon John Eric Erickson. And ah. Would you believe he was part Danish? With a name like Eric Erickson. <laughs> right. Uh, and a dresser. I know that yeah, name. A dresser was just um, almost like a, a surgical assistant. So he wouldn't perform the surgery himself, but he'd be handing over um, implements. He'd be um, getting involved with the dressings. He'd be the one doing the um, aftercare, wound care. You know, so he's yeah. basically the the general dog's body for, for the actual surgeon. And he was learning lots about theory under Erickson, but had not yet in 1851 despite you know he's three years into his his medical degree here he'd not had an opportunity to perform a surgery all of his very own just yet that however was soon to change because on the 27th of june 1851 julia sullivan was sitting in a london pub with her husband and a close friend the close friend was needed as julia had recently left her husband and had only agreed to meet him to try and convince him once and for all that his abusive behaviour meant that she would never be returning to his home. So, although divorce wasn't a thing at that point, you could you could abandon you know your spouse and just go off and, well, yeah. and live another life. Uh, and that was fully what Julia Sullivan intended to do. Uh, Mr. Sullivan responded in a calm and measured way by stabbing her Uh-oh. in the guts. Oh God! Right in the guts. <laughs> Uh, right where it hurts um, and then he announced that he'd stabbed her in the guts and when Julia's friend said Mr Sullivan you've killed her his response was not yet uh, and he actually as she staggered down the road looking for aid he followed her for a while because he just wanted to make sure that she was going to die which oh my God. begs the question why he only stabbed her the once wanted to make her suffer but, well, that's the only conclusion I can come to Either he Ugh. just wanted to watch her suffer, which makes him a sadist, or because he was convinced she'd left him for another man. Maybe he was hoping that she'd stumble to her new lovers to him. Yeah, for oh. aid, and that then he could stab that guy up as well. Jeez Louise. But either way, uh, Julia was brought to University College London, um, where it just so happened that Joseph Lister was the only surgeon on duty. It had taken her three hours to get to the hospital since the stabbing. What? And in that time... Three hours. Despite her best efforts, <laughs> about eight inches of her intestine had managed to slither out of her body. Oh. She was kind of just holding it. Oh. So she, you can hear it knocking on the door, like a, a sort of a wet slap on the door. Joseph Lister opens oh. it, and she kind of just holds the guts up. and She's like, holding her guts in one hand, <laughs> So knocking on the door with the other. <laughs> I don't know if you can help with this, but uh, it hurts. Oh. Lister... He wasn't phased. Wait, did the husband, like, follow her for three hours? No, by, by this point, uh, a police officer had um, rendered assistance um, and Mr. Sullivan was already in custody. Okay, so, And don't, don't worry, the police officer didn't just run up, grab Mr. Sullivan and say, right, thanks for letting me know, girls, and walk off. He got um, <laughs> some other police officers to turn up and some of them escorted um, Julia to the hospital and some of them arrested mr sullivan who was okay very open about the fact that yes he had stabbed her and he hadn't bothered to get rid of the knife he'd used to stab her he was still sort of just walking aimlessly down the road with it watching her so pretty open and shut case for those guys 
Yeah, that's good. But yeah, Lister, he saw this insane sight to see when you're just busy doing your case reports by candlelight and then this presents itself to you. But he rose to the occasion and acted very decisively. He washed the exposed guts in warm water and actually ended up having deciding to extend the wound slightly so that he could return them all back inside Julia, where he felt they'd be happier. <laughs> However, during this process, he noted that the intestine itself had been cut open. And unlike many surgeons of the time, he elected to actually take the time to sew up the wound with silk thread rather than just burning it closed with a heated blade and stuffing it in, hoping for the best, which is, you know, cauterizing the wound was still considered, right. you know, the best option. Ooh, that would have hurt. It well, would have hurt. And then you've got a sort of um, a sore there that's not going to heal properly inside you. Yeah. It's, it's not going to then, though, well. they had ether, right? So she probably was under. Oh, yeah, but yeah. true. Oh, he put her under. Don't worry about that. There'd be a lot more scar tissue with mm. the cauterizing. Okay, go ahead. But because he'd done it in such a slow, considered, conscientious way, he pretty much guaranteed that Julia had the best chance of survival. The operation was a success, and within a couple of weeks, Julia was able to walk out of the hospital. No ill effects, lived along. I mean, this is London. Yeah. <laughs> just just turn of you know the 18th century, so at uh, the 19th century so i say a long and full life she lived to 50. long and full life for the time yeah but the operation was mentioned in the premier medical journal of the day the lancet twice over the next few months and lister was tipped as one to watch oh nice in case you were wondering by the way the husband uh, was tried at the old bailey for attempted murder and he was sentenced to 20 years transportation uh-huh lister himself gave evidence at the trial so his, his very first um, surgery culminated in a court appearance, <laughs> but in a good way, She's nice. Right. In his last year at UCL, Lister was taught by a Scottish doctor called William Sharpie, whose class on physiology made a lasting impression. He encouraged Lister to observe a range of human tissues under his microscope, a practice that was still considered pointless at the time. Huh. But as Lister had access to the best microscope in all of England... Uh, he was soon making groundbreaking discoveries. His first was the confirmation that the iris is made of smooth muscle tissue and as such is an involuntary movement. So there was a massive nice. argument about whether um, uh, you know, the sympathetic or the parasympathetic nervous system was uh, controlling the iris and he kind of, he was the only person with the equipment powerful enough and the wherewithal to use that equipment to go, nope, it's smooth muscle tissue. Yeah, uh, this is completely involuntary. There you go. Sorted that uh, out for you, lads. And then off he went. By the time Lister finished his studies in 1852, he had observed many things under his microscope lens, the most fateful of which was the discharge from the sores caused by hospital-acquired gangrene. It was one of the biggest killers in hospitals at the time and the bane of all surgeons. Yeah. Because, like you say, they were whip-quick with the actual surgeries and they were very well-versed in... At, you know, uh, tying off all the arteries and making sure that the patient didn't bleed out. It was in the days after the surgeries that the majority of the patients would die, and it was generally through hospital-acquired infections. Yep. So specifically, uh, Lister was trying to figure out why the sores he debrided and treated with mercury pernitrate... Uh, pernitrate? Pernitrate. Pernitrate, I think. Yeah, pernitrate, seemed to heal with less pus than the ones that were left to heal naturally. 
because at the time, surgeons considered pus to be a sign that the body was healing properly. Ah. Which, <laughs> uh, yeah, so they weren't particularly all up on um, sort of cleaning out the wounds thoroughly because they were like, well, p- the pus is good. That's the body uh, yeah. doing what it needs to do because they, they had oh. no idea that that was one of the earlier signs of the infection. And yeah. Lister, he wasn't convinced that that sort of received wisdom, which is why he was starting this investigation. As anaesthesia had allowed more surgery to be performed, it did mean that more people were on the wards with open wounds because more surgeries were being, you know, oh, green lit. Because it was like, oh, well, yeah. you know, you're not going to feel the thing, mate. We may as well. Um, yeah. But it led to an equal increase in people dying from a range of hospital-acquired infections. It was a problem that was crying out for someone with a clinical and rational mind to devote themselves to solving. But that would have to Sometimes. wait. Sometimes... <laughs> Oh, sorry. Sometimes you have to look at things from a different perspective, mm. a fresh set of eyes. And for him, his fresh set of eyes was his microscope. Mm. But not right at this moment. It had to wait because <laughs> he finished his studies and it was time for a holiday. Oh, he, he well deserved. Yeah. Well, Lister's mentor, Sharpie, uh, suggested that he go on a grand tour of Europe to observe the latest cutting edge medical science on the continent before he settled down. And Joseph Lister's father... Again, you know, best dad in the world. He saw the <laughs> sense in getting first-hand knowledge of the most up-to-date practices because he's like, well, yeah. when are you going to get another chance to go off for a year and do this? Once right. you've got your own general practice or you've got your own surgery, you're not just going to be able to bob off and do these things. Exactly. Uh, so he agreed to fund the trip. Oh, wow. Shoppy's advice extended to saying that Lister's first stop had to be Edinburgh to visit with one of his former colleagues, a respected surgeon called James Syme, who was better known as the Napoleon of Surgery. Oh, what? Now, that was his nickname. Uh, He had a temper and would hold a grudge as only a Scotsman can do, (laughs) to the point where he, he hadn't spoken to a surgical colleague he worked in the same hospital with for 20 years. Wow over a minor disagreement they'd had. And when this oh. guy turned up at his house, at Syme's house, to say, look, I want to bury the hatch here. I'm dying. Syme's only response was, all right, I forgive you. <laughs> and then he just went back to his papers. <laughs> Which I love. Oh. Um, but he was also, aside from his temper, famed for taking cases that no one else would touch. So if every other surgeon in the country had said it was too risky and that there was no chance of doing it, Sam was, was the guy you'd go to and go, well, I'll... Yeah, why not? You want me to hack out some infected jawbone? I'll have a swing at it. See how we get on. Um, <laughs> amazingly, the quiet, studious Quaker and the brash and bold Scott, they hit it off immediately, mainly due to the fact that they both shared an almost suicidal work ethic. Uh. So, you know... He, Lister had asked, can I, can I just follow you around for a little while? Can I just see, you know, what, what your life is as an eminent surgeon? And Simon agreed. And after a couple of days, he realised that by the end of the day, the only person who was still there, fresh-faced and asking him questions and wanting to help, it wasn't all of his dresses that he had, all of his team of workers. It was this sort of southern Quaker. This guy on holiday. <laughs> yeah, apparently on holiday. <laughs> Uh, Lister was getting more clinical experience with Syme than he could ever have dreamed 
and he decided to extend his stay for a little while and then he extended it a bit more uh, until finally in 1854 uh, a full two years after he'd started his holiday he officially took the position of house surgeon under Syme, who allowed him free reign to take an interest in any case that might interest him so he built up the trust with his mentor to the point where it's like you just whatever you want to do i trust you i trust you lister something about you <laughs> wow lister potentially took this agreement a bit too far the following year when Uh-oh. he decided the person that interested him most was sime's daughter agnes oh. <laughs> he had fallen hopelessly in love with her the moment oh. he'd met her and finally asked agnes to marry him in 1856 Lister only actually delayed asking for so long because he knew that by marrying someone outside of the Quakers, he would have to leave the religion. And he was concerned oh. that this would destroy the relationship with his father, who'd supported him oh. for so long. <coughs> However, Joseph Jackson Lister continued to be just, just an amazing person. He reassured his son that he only wanted him to be happy and that he would oh. continue to love and support him no matter what, giving his oh. blessing... Uh, for the marriage to go ahead. Aww. So, Lister Jr., little Joey Jr., he left the Quakers, but he got himself a wife. Aww. And actually, his dad... And a great father-in-law. Yeah. His dad wasn't able to attend because it was taking place, I believe it was in an Anglican uh, church. Um, but he'd given his blessing, and he continued to you know, support him through everything, regardless. Saying That's great. That essentially... essentially I, I believe one day you'll make your way back to the church and I don't need to be, you know, forcing you to stay. It's for every man to make that Yeah, who's decision. to say that the woman can't be part of the church? Except well, that... Well, she might eventually choose to convert, you know. They're playing the long game. They're like, we're, we're confident that we're right, so you'll see yeah. it. You'll see it the right way eventually. <laughs> they're, not quite as, they're not quite as pushy as, say, um, uh, the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses in terms of this. Oh, they're yeah. just... Kind of, yeah, you'll come back to us if you want. We're fine either way. <laughs> Have a nice time, though. <laughs> Agnes was as interested in Lister's experiments with his microscope as any husband could wish, and she quickly took on the role of unofficial lab assistant. A lot of his um, scientific notes are clearly written by Agnes. She was tolerant of all kinds of weird shit on the kitchen table <laughs> you know she she understood that there would be late nights that there would be times when they'd be eating a meal and he'd just shout eureka and run off and she <laughs> might you know come back at 2 a.m covered in blood with oh, a satisfied God. smile on his face and she had to go he's not killed anyone he's not killed <laughs> my husband is not a killer um, but with his personal life settled and a stable position Lister finally felt he could return to the question of post-operative infections. He became obsessed with the mechanism of inflammation that was often the first sign that something was about to go tits up. Uh, Every surgeon had their own methods for dressing wounds that they swore reduced the risk uh, of inflammation, but these were based as much in superstition as in science. There were still people... Sounds like today. Everybody knows everybody's way is the right way. Mm. (laughs) <laughs> well, this is, uh, you know, people were still using what were essentially poultices at the time. You know, mixtures of herbs and stuff were still routinely being used. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, you, I can't imagine what was packed in those wounds. And you'd have other people who would say, no, what you need to do is you just need to keep the wound dry. So they'd just change the dressings. They wouldn't clean it. They wouldn't wash it. 
they just keep changing the dressings and say eventually the body will sort itself out or it or it won't <laughs> but uh, it's you know my job's done i've chopped the limb off it's for the it's for the body to sort the rest of it out lister started his investigations at home uh, with experiments on frogs oh. because he'd, he'd looked at a lot of dead tissue from wounds and he reasoned yeah. that he needed to start seeing wounds in living tissue to see how the blood vessels responded. Uh, so Naturally. he scientifically began inflicting specific injuries on the frogs oh. and noted the behaviour of the blood vessels near the site and the healing process as it took place in real time. The most gory of these experiments, because I'm Poor sure frog. you want to hear about the most gory one. Oh, of course. Yeah. He Even removed not. the brain and most of the spinal cord from a frog while it was still alive. Ooh. And I'm assuming it was at this point when Agnes continued diligently taking the notes that he knew <laughs> in his heart that she was a keeper. Uh, he spent the afternoon slowly removing bits of the you brain. Yeah, but to be fair, she probably was... She was the daughter of surgeon, that other yeah. guy who... Right, so... Yeah, she wasn't coming wasn't into it cold. New. Right. <laughs> But yeah, it, he spent a happy afternoon removing bits of the brain and noting the impact that this had on the frog. I think this went beyond inflammation at that point, and it was just, you know, pure curiosity. I wonder what happens if I stab it here kind of deal. Oh, uh, the right. frog did eventually die. He didn't try and put it back together after this. <laughs> little Franken-frog. <laughs> but it, it served its purpose because Lister concluded that the presence of inflammation did not mean that a wound would become infected. Uh, and it was, in fact, a natural part of the healing process. He published 15 papers in all on the subject before he left Edinburgh to take up a new position he'd been offered at Glasgow University as a lecturer. So he's going to become okay. a, a lecturer on surgery. Okay. Co-author of the Communist Manifesto, Frederick Engels, he was a bit of a you know well-versed European traveller, and he described okay. his visit to Glasgow at the time thusly. <laughs> I have seen human degradation in some of its worst phases, both in England and abroad, but I can advisedly say that I did not believe, until I visited the winds of Glasgow, that so large an amount of filth, crime, misery and disease existed Oof. in one spot in any civilised country. <laughs> oh. He then gave it one star on TripAdvisor. <laughs> so, it was... Compared to Edinburgh, even though they're only 40 miles apart, the hospital was double the size. The population was more than double the size of Edinburgh. And it was just very heavily industrialised town with injuries just coming through at such a speed that it actually took... It took Lister two years to convince the hospital to let him start taking patients there because they were concerned that... It was such a busy hospital, there wasn't time to teach people. It wasn't a teaching hospital. Like if, uh. we, if we start letting you try to teach students on these wards, we're never going to get through the backlog. If you come in here as a surgeon, you can come as a surgeon, we'd be happy for your help, but we're not going to sit around while you try to teach yeah. people in this hospital. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> so while he was going through wrangling, you know, permission to actually used the hospital and the hospital patients as part of his teaching, he invested his own money in updating the lecture theatre um, oh. that he taught at. Why? He, because it was old, <laughs> it was grubby, and he... And nobody else was going to do it? Yeah, he was starting to realise that cleanliness was linked to a reduction 
um, in infection rates, and he was determined ah. to sort of, you know, practice what he preached and to make sure that when his students came into his lecture hall, and they came in and saw, you know, sort of like the the whole surgery thing for his uh, yeah. demonstration set up, that it would be incredibly clean, uh, you know, really well set up, so that that's what they then expect when they went out to take jobs, and that's what they try to emulate. Uh, he became a very popular teacher with his students, lecturing on the importance of physiology in surgery and the importance of treating their patients with a view to retaining as much function as possible. So he he was constantly, you know, don't just chop the leg off. Think about how the stump's going to be. Think about right. where you can retain some function there. Think about how it's going to be for them trying to live with it afterwards rather than just getting rid of it. Right. Lister, I mean, this was him through and through because of his Quaker upbringing, because of his ideals of, you know, he wasn't just a, a surgeon. He was ministering the sick on behalf of the Lord. He treated yeah. his patients with a level of care that was not normally given to the poorest in society at the time. He would personally escort them from surgery back to the wards and would help with transferring them to the bed. He would wow. take... They had a really good bedside manner. Yeah, he'd take an amazing amount of care in um, tucking them in, hot water bottles, making sure they were perfectly comfortable before he left them. Um, and there was a story um, in the book I used as a source where uh, there was a, a young girl who he treated uh, and she sort of walked up to him and showed that she had a doll and that the arm had come off. And he, he oh. gently took it and he took the time to lay it out on the bed in front of her and to carefully stitch the wound back together so that she had a fully functioning doll again. Because that just seemed to be the kind of guy he was. You know, it's, what's the point in doing it all if you're not actually you know, making the yeah. patients feel good? Wow, what a sweet guy. Unfortunately, as nice as the personal touch was, it was not enough to stop the massive rates of death from post-operative infections. And though... Lister experimented with having surgeons clean their instruments in boiled water prior to surgery at this time, again experimenting with the idea of cleanliness. It was proving ineffective. And one of the issues with Glasgow Hospital Surgical Wing above Edinburgh's was that they decided to build it right next door to the uh, graveyard. Mm. And because they had such high levels of uh, <laughs> of uh, post-operative infection and death from gangrene and all that kind of stuff, yeah. Uh, the smell of rotting corpses was pretty much on the daily uh, on all of the wards. You could smell this. Which, considering, you know, miasma theory was still a big thing, Yeah, you would have yeah. thought that everyone would have been as concerned. But no, these seems to pretty much be like, no, it's okay. The corpses are on the other side of a low wall. I'm sure there's yeah, no transference. That's true, to. because that was a huge thing. Like, just the being in the air, that was, yeah... You would think that they would have tried to put some more space between them and the graveyard. Or just build a bigger wall. You shouldn't be able to see, you know, oh. the, the gravestones from from the surgery ward. <laughs> You're wheeled into the surgery ward. You look out the window and the first thing you see is a gravestone and the stench oh. of rotting flesh. It's like, oh, my God. <laughs> Talk about no. it. Yeah. Oh, being terrified of hospitals you wouldn't want to go back but luckily for Lister he was then gifted the missing piece of the puzzle to understanding how hospital infections worked because in 1864 
he stumbled on the work of Frenchman Louis Pasteur. Uh-huh. Pasteur had been asked a few years prior by a maker of beetroot wine, which I've never come across before. <laughs> but apparently you can make wine from beetroot. Mm. I think you can make anything from beets. <laughs> no, apparently so. But this, this beetroot winemaker had approached Louis Pasteur and asked him to figure out why some of his vats were spoiling while others were fine. Because it, he was just like, I, I don't know why some of my vats of beetroot wine are just going spoiled. Because I'm not doing anything different with, with them. Can you, can you come and tell me what chemical imbalance might be causing this? Because Pasteur was a chemist by background. But he discovered that the issue was not chemical but biological. Pasteur was able to demonstrate that bacteria were responsible for the wine going bad. And he further proved that different types of bacteria appeared to be responsible for butter going bad and for meat. Ah. And Lister reasoned, essentially humans are just another kind of meat. And that it must be these bacteria (laughs) uh, that were the source of the post-surgical infections he'd been battling his entire life. True. It was time for him to put this theory to the test. With acid. Uh, because what? hell yeah because <laughs> you know why not yeah specifically <laughs> carbolic acid after oh, a yeah. few failed tests Lister was presented with an 11 year old boy in August 1865 who'd been run over by a cart and was now in the unenviable position of being able to get a tan on his leg bone which was protruding uh. quite a way from his skin so it's a clean clean fracture clean break yikes yeah Rather than amputate, which any other surgeon of the time would have done, Lister cleaned the wound out with his acid and set the bone. Lister then personally cared for the wound to make sure that the acidic antiseptic was reapplied regularly. And after six weeks, the boy was able to walk out of the hospital. I know this story. Having lost practically no function in his leg. Yeah. For Lister, this was proof positive, and he continued to use carbolic acid regularly, reducing the rate of post-op infections for patients under his care to below 10%, which was by far the best of any surgeon in the country. So, of course, when his results were published in The Lancet in 1867, they were roundly criticised by most of the other eminent surgeons in the country. Of course. (laughs) As per usual. Yeah. However, they could not say that Lister was not practising what he was preaching, as he's even used his new antiseptic methods to perform a mastectomy on his own sister after she had found a cancerous lump in her breast. That I did not know. He performed the mastectomy on his own dining room table. Wow. Using his carbolic acid mixture, which he'd started mixing it with oil um, to stop uh, the skin actually just becoming too burnt. So he'd, he'd refined it a little bit. But yeah, he did it on his own kitchen table had his sister laid out there. I'm assuming Agnes was there taking notes. Like, this is the weirdest family dinner I've been to in a while. Right? Uh, next time you're around for... Well, you don't have Thanksgiving there, but I was going to say next time you're there for the holiday, you're all around the table. Yeah, remember that time you were on this, this very table and we did that surgery? Yeah. Okay. It's just Everyone's just like, does did anyone need stories? anything removing? Just while we're here. <laughs> May as well. Oh Just before goodness. we set the table. I don't want to set the table and then Make have to perform tradition. Yeah, <laughs> some kind of uh, minor surgery for you. She survived, by the way. I should have pointed Yay. that out, I think. Yeah, she yeah. did survive. 
Uh, although afterwards Lister did comment that he never wanted to go through such a stressful procedure again. Yeah, because it's your sister. Yeah. Would, well, he was thinking... There's some ethical issues there. You know, he, he's he got a... After this is done, he's got a right to his dad, who's still living down in Essex in England, oh, and let gosh. him know how it's gone. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Betty died. Um, oh. I'll be back for a visit in March? And Question I'm the mark. one that killed her, because, oh my gosh. Now, yeah. the main critic of his new methods was a guy called James Simpson, and... I don't think I'm being cruel to him to say he was mainly um, motivated by personal gain because he had developed a different method of reducing the risk of infection called acupressure, which didn't work. Uh, (laughs) But he was worried that if Lister's use of antiseptics became widespread, then people would stop using his method. And I think there was also, he was one of the older surgeons who just didn't want to face up to the idea that the way that they'd been practicing their entire working lives have been inadvertently killing people because right you know you've you've spent your entire life saying oh i'm i'm helping people i'm doing my best to, to give these people a chance at life and then somebody comes up and just says well you know maybe if you just tried washing the wound out a little bit then it's like those those doctors that would prescribe cigarettes because they thought it was helpful to the lungs yeah, well it makes them work they didn't a bit know harder. that they were yeah it's hard to let go of, of, the of old, what you've been yeah. doing wrong well, it's hard to admit that, I think, especially yeah. you've got some of these people are coming, you know, they've they've risen, they've managed to get um, very successful practices out of it, they've made a lot of money, and now they're being asked to sort of admit or accept that what they've been doing has had major flaws in it for the last 30, 40 years. It's very difficult yeah. to be able to turn around and go, yep, you're right. Even if there was no way they could have known, there was they were all working to the best of their knowledge at the time. Right. So it's not like it was a personal attack. It just seems like a lot of them took it as a personal attack. Oh, yeah. Uh, again, it was Lister's father who offered his son solid advice and reminded him that no one bringing new ideas into the world has ever been universally accepted. In fact, yep. he believed his son should see it as an honour and a privilege to be chosen by God to do such good and meaningful work in ministering to the sick. To be able to birth oh. this new revolution was a, a glorious thing and that he shouldn't shirk from the responsibility, but should do it in a, in a noble and, and good Quaker fashion. Spurred on by his father's support, Lister turned the other cheek and tried to engage Simpson in discussion rather than argument, but finding that he could not be reasoned with, Lister sent a final short letter to the Lancet. As I have already endeavoured to place the matter in its true light, without doing injustice to anyone, I must forbear from any comment on Simpson's allegations. And that was pretty much his last word on the matter. So he's like, I don't, I don't care that he's going to continue attacking me. I've, just, I've got a job to be getting on with here, guys. Right, I'm just yeah. going to keep doing it. Because Lister was busy. He was busy doing two things. Firstly, he was refining his systems using the scientific method making it you know easier for people to follow the course of treatment that he was suggesting with this carbolic acid making sure that the preparations of carbolic acid he was suggesting were more and more effective while removing the side effects of you know burning the skin and things like that Ugh, yeah because it's pretty it's pretty harsh <laughs> well i mean it, it's it was diluted quite a bit and the use of the oil really helped as you know i'd I imagine the first guy, because he did have two failed tests, and I'm imagining failed test number one was a guy who just screamed in incredible pain oh. as he rubbed 
this acid into the wound. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the second thing he was doing, uh, he was teaching, and some might even say preaching, uh, his new principles to the students of Glasgow University. Lister seemed to have quickly accepted that few in his own generation would be able to accept the truth of his discovery. However, by teaching it to the surgeons who would come after and who didn't have a lifetime of baggage uh, oh, regarding true. the losing of patients, he could eventually win the argument without wasting time with the actual arguing. So it's like, <laughs> I don't care what you guys think because you're only going to be you know, performing surgeries for maybe five, ten more years, whereas all of these guys who are going to be doing it for the next 50 years, they all think I'm right and they're all going to be doing what I'm suggesting when they open their own yeah. practices and when they take your positions at the hospitals. Lister was reported to be a very gifted teacher who used practical demonstrations and humour to impart his wisdom. He was also known to lock people out if they were late and to admonish anyone who belittled <laughs> or endangered even the most destitute patient in their care. Oh, that's cool. There was, a, there was one, he was, he was performing a surgery um, and all of the people there and he had one of the students act as his dresser and he asked him to hand him a scalpel and the guy handed him a scalpel and he tested it on his thumb and then theatrically walked over to the open fire because, of course, there'd be an open fire in a surgery. Why not? Uh, I mean, right. In an operating theatre. And he threw the scalpel in there. And then he walked back over and he asked for another one. And he tested that one. And then again, theatrically, he walked over and he threw it in the fire. And then he asked for a third one. And he tested that one, decided that one was sharp enough and then had a right go at the guy who'd handed him the other two and was like if it's not good enough that you would use it on yourself, why the hell are you handing it to me? Why are you handing me a blunt scalpel to use on this person? Wow. And I can't everyone... believe he tested it on himself. Well, I, th I think he was proving a point. <laughs> I'd, I'd, to be honest, I think it was a bit, and I think no matter how sharp the scalpels were going to be, it was like he wanted to get their attention. Prove, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Having convinced the students in Glasgow to follow his antiseptic principles, Lister moved back to Edinburgh, to preach to the students he found there. So he took a job at the Edinburgh University. His lectures by this time often being given to over 400 students at a time. Oh my gosh! The accusations of his peers continued to be ignored by Lister, and as his students began to take jobs throughout the country and the empire, the evidence for his system of antiseptic wound treatment, and germ theory in general, to be fair, grew. Eventually, his harshest critic, Simpson, died, which was good. <laughs> Probably infection. <laughs> no, I, th I think it was probably from a brain hemorrhage brought about by his exasperation that Lister refused to argue with him. Because, <laughs> you know, you've, you know angry people. People who get <laughs> angry and they want confrontation. Yes. They can't handle when that confrontation doesn't appear and it, no. it, it internalises. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, his head probably just blew up one day. <laughs> And finally, oh. on September 4th, 1871, the matter, in Britain at least, was pretty much settled for good. Because Lister received a letter ordering him to attend Queen Victoria herself at Balmoral. Oh. The Queen had an abscess in her armpit that needed treatment, and because she delayed so long, not wanting to oh. make a fuss, she was now gravely ill. Oh, and no. There were real questions about whether she would survive. By requesting that Lister perform the operation to remove it, the Queen was sending a powerful message regarding the use of antiseptic techniques. And as long as the operation was a success, I mean, that's a big uh, caveat right. to this. It, it, this. You know what? Won... You think you would think that the 
the surgery on his sister was stressful. Yeah, no, I mean... now, it's, now it's the monarch. Now it's the Empress <laughs> right? of India. Um, but if it was a success, it would go further in normalising the procedure in the minds of British doctors and surgeons than any other procedure to this point. To be extra safe, because this was a queen, right? Lister not only cleaned the royal armpit with carbolic acid prior to the surgery, but he also had someone spraying a mixture of carbolic acid into the air to try and remove any and all risk of infection throughout. So he was dusting the room at all. He had someone <laughs> dusting the room at all times with carbolic acid. I think they did that in the surgical, weren't they? Didn't they start spraying the instruments as well? Yeah. Didn't they? Right. So it kind of made it a little slippery too. I don't. I, don't, I, I think mm-hmm. at times, I remember reading at times it would make it a little slippery and they had to be extra careful because the spray that they did made the instruments I, I think for this particular operation, Joseph Lister was never more careful in his life right. than he was <laughs> during these few oh, minutes. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, the operation was a success, and the Queen was only sprayed directly in the face with acid on one occasion, oh, which is quite good. Oh, God. Oh, <laughs> um, God. From then on, Lister was able to, and would often, to be fair to him, claim that he was the only person to have ever stuck a knife in the Queen. <laughs> So that was his, his claim to fame. Well, I've stabbed Ba-dum-bum-bum. Queen Victoria. <laughs> and she thanked me. <laughs> and she liked it. Lister, fresh off this success, well, I say fresh off this, five years after this success, he was invited to America in 1876 to talk on his antiseptic technique at the Philadelphia Centennial <gasps> Exhibition. Nice. So they were celebrating the birth of a nation a hundred years prior. Uh, he was not aware at the time but the former colony was not entirely in agreement with the ringing endorsement he had received from the Queen. In fact, he was being set up by a surgeon oh. called Samuel D. Goss. He had booked Lister to speak during a two-day conference, but made sure that every other speaker was against the idea of germ theory and antiseptic techniques. Oh, jeez. Lister had to endure a day and a half of this, seated in the front row as doctor after doctor dismissed his life work as... And I'm assuming these are the words they used because this is, you know, um, 1800s America. As hooey, hokum, and flimflam. Before he was given his chance to speak. So for a day and a half, he had to sit there mute and listen to just people rip apart everything. I don't know that I would. I think I would have gotten up. He's very patient. Well, he was engaged to speak. He, He had to take his turn. He got up. Uh, maintaining his dignity and gave a long evidence-based account of his work and the outcomes both in a broad statistical sense and via individual case studies speaking for nearly three hours wow then goss himself got up to deliver the closing speech where he ridiculed lister said his speech had been too long boring and patently in error before ending by insisting that americans were not foolish enough to fall for his snake oil claims (laughs) oh snake oil yeah, I mean, that's pretty much, as far as Goss was concerned, that would be it. And it's right. The American way isn't. And to be fair, the American arrogance around surgery was born of the um, Civil War because the surgeons over there were well-versed and had a lot of experience, way more than the British surgeons in terms of amputations, um, you know, battlefield surgery. So they felt that um, they were the cutting edge 
these surgeons because of the sheer volume of surgery that they performed. Yeah. And they weren't going to have some, you know, mild-mannered, stuttering English Quaker come over and go, well, actually, guys, (laughs) I I think I can improve the way that you're doing things. They weren't going to stand for it. But Lister didn't care. The younger medical students in America clamoured to have him speak at their universities. And after Philadelphia, he engaged in an ad hoc national tour, spreading his theories far and wide. The impact of this tour can still be seen today, as it inspired the creation of Listerine in 1879, which of course was named for Joseph Lister. Right. Uh, it was created by another Joseph, Dr. Joseph Joshua Lawrence, who had heard Lister speak and, in the most American manner possible, wondered if he could make some money out of these ideas by patenting and producing his own brand of antiseptic. And it turned <laughs> out he could. Yeah. Uh, originally, he said it could be used on anything. And he was talking about um, surfaces, open wounds. It was just by chance that it kind of um, fell into the dental care market. Because uh, he'd, he'd just thrown it at everything. Listerine, when it was first produced, would clean anything. Like the Windex for the body. Yeah. Well, the Windex for the windows. I mean, I'm pretty sure at one point it was like, yeah, use this train on your windows. <laughs> the original formulation was 27% alcohol as well. Ooh. So, whew. No wonder people like to gargle with it. Right. <clears throat> it also inspired a trio of brothers to form a small company making sterile surgical equipment and dressings. Uh, they decided to call it Johnson & Johnson rather than Johnson & Johnson & Johnson. And I hear it's, <laughs> it's still doing well to this day. Yeah, they've only been sued a little bit. <laughs> Even with the suing, I checked. Even and with as their, of... their talcum powder, which I don't think is completely fair, unless they knew about it. Which they did. That's a whole other story. Yeah. Well, <laughs> even with the lawsuits, um, right. they're still, as of today, because I checked the stocks today, they're worth over $170 billion as a company. Ooh. So, uh, yeah, that, that comes from this as well. They do a lot for nurses, too, though, so... It's hard to hate them completely. <laughs> they do a lot of a lot of uh, education and stuff for nurses. I, I'm not here to malign Johnson and Johnson. I'm ju- I'm just saying that this <laughs> this was when they were created. Right. Uh, Joseph Lister returned to England, and in spite of being fully prepared to die as a medical outcast, you know, trusting to the long view that his ideas would be taken up, he was recognised in his lifetime, and he was made a lord. Nice. Which came with the title Baron of Lyme Regis, <laughs> which is a small town in England. Okay. <laughs> it's not the most impressive thing to be Baron of, let's just put it that way. Right, but you know, but it was the Queen's armpit, right? Yeah, it wasn't, yeah, if he'd have had to do something a bit more, if he'd have operated on the Queen's armpit. If it had been more glamorous, then yeah. maybe. <laughs> <laughs> the more glamorous the operation, the more glamorous the place you're Baron of. Right. <laughs> yeah. If you'd operated on the Queen's brain, you'd be Baron of London by now. <laughs> by the turn of the century he was preparing to retire but he still found time to develop cat gut sutures as a way of further reducing the risk of post-operative wow. infection uh, a method for repairing kneecaps because oh. he had a spare five minutes uh, and remembering the incident with his sister uh, he made some improvements to the process of performing mastectomies Oh, that's he nice. also um, found time to save the life of another monarch um, King Edward, by advising Aww. on his post-operative wound care following an appendectomy in 1902. Good. So he saved a, a king and a queen 
There you go. Which is, yeah, that's nice. You think that it'd improve his lordship, but you know. Well, no, he didn't get bumped up by that. And I, yeah, I agree with you. That's two yeah. now. He should at least get. He should. A knighthood. <laughs> by the time he died in 1912, the antiseptic techniques he had championed were already being overtaken by the idea of complete asepsis. Uh, and the concept of germ theory was considered medical fact, you know, by the vast majority, I should say, because yeah. there are still people in the world today who apparently don't believe in the concept of really? germs and viruses and all those kinds of things, as homeopathy will attest. Um, oh. But, you know, some of the older um, medical ideas, like the miasma theory, uh, finally drifted off into the ether, along with the four humours. Uh, <laughs> Which is, Those which is humors sad. hung on for a long time. This, they are still, to be honest, in terms of um, yeah, homeopathy, in terms of you know, alternative medicine, the four humors are still referenced to this day. I think that's yeah, that's true. That's a good point. At the time of his funeral, memorial services were held simultaneously in London, Glasgow, and Edinburgh, the three places that he taught. Oh. Probably thousands of medical students over the years. Wow. And a memorial to Joseph Lister sits in pride of place in Westminster Cathedral to this day, next to Charles Darwin, who's another, you know, scientist who you may have heard of. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And that is the story of Joseph Lister, who wow. introduced the idea of, you know, antiseptic treatments. Yeah, I... You, so I know a little bit about the story. You went into much more detail that I didn't know. Mm. I mean, of course, I knew about the the caustic, I mean, the the acid. Um, I didn't know about the queen. I didn't know about the prince. I didn't know about the, I didn't know a lot about that story. I did know about the young boy. I remember that one. With the car, but, yeah. Yeah, with the car. I knew that story. But yeah, you went into a lot more detail than I, than I knew. Well, all... That's so interesting. All credit has to go to um, the the person who wrote the source that I, my main source that I used. Uh, great name for a book. And I originally bought it just for the name. It was called The Butchering Art. Oh, And it was written yeah. by Lindsay Fitzharris. Oh. And. Yeah, I've heard of her. Yeah, she. She has a show there, right, in um, the UK? I don't know. She might do. She did. She has a, I, because we can't watch it here in the U.S., Oh no! But she's got a, a show on the BBC that um, you have to check her out. I think it might be on one of your services there, like Netflix or Hulu or something. But well, we can't on... get it here. I can't even find it on YouTube. If but it's I've on read, the BBC, I've... we get a thing called BBC iPlayer, so it's just all BBC programming. Oh, all I think it's on. The, she's on the BBC. She's got a, sh- a show, and she does episodes, and it's all um, medical stuff. Medical well, history. She was. I mean, I loved it because it, it just it didn't shy away from the blood and gore. There were, there were stories of people, um, you know, sucking blood out of a wound, um, yeah. and spitting it on oh the floor gosh. to try and save somebody's life. And there was Ugh. all the sort of details of the, the 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 surgeries that went wrong and the ways that people died. And you know what's funny is I think I own that book. <laughs> I just haven't read it. Oh well, I I highly recommend it. It was gripping. It's less than three hundred pages, but it is well worth a go. Yeah. So there you yeah. go. That is Joseph Lister, yet well, another in my long line of Quakers that I seem to quite like. 
Honestly, people are going to think that this podcast is actually just a really low-key sort of Quaker rep- well, recruitment Quakers have just, drive. Just have done a lot of good, yeah. great things, right? Well, I'm like, you know, <laughs> as soon as I find, I, I, I don't check people's religions before I start reading the story, but I start reading the story and I'm like, oh, yeah, of course they're a Quaker. <laughs> <laughs> you saying they didn't get corrupted by power? Must be a Quaker. There we are. <laughs> Well, I enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Hi there, it's Emma, Chief Organiser at Consistently Eccentric. Here to remind you all that if you like what you hear, you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast, Spotify and iTunes. How fancy. You can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week.